Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Ample Entertainment co-founders Ari Mark and Phil Lutt, Upgrade Productions co-president Matt Broadley, S4C Chief Executive Sean Doyle and BBC Studios Children's Chief Cecilia Pearson. Three-part documentary series The Invisible Pilot debuted on US stream at HBO Max last week, a stranger-than-fiction tale of a family man in Arkansas who one day appears to commit suicide but then emerges alive years later when the true story of his dangerous drug-smuggling, gun-running double life emerges. Directed by Ample Entertainment co-founders Ari Mark and Phil Lotz, the show counts Anchorman, The Big Short, Vice and Succession's Adam McKay among its exec producers. Mark and Lotz spoke to Clive Whittingham about the project and how the true crime genre is evolving. Ari Mark, uh, owner of Ample, uh, executive producer at Ample, director at Ample, head of morale. And I'm Phil Lutz. I'm all the other things that Ari just said, except for the morale piece. But I also uh, co-directed The Invisible Pilot with Ari. And shot a lot of it. There we go. Invisible Pilot, yeah, that's what we're, that's what we're coming together to talk about. How is morale at uh, as Ample, head, head of morale? So it's been a while since we saw each other in person and you've had to negotiate a production company during a production lockdown. How, how has it been and how, how are are you coming out the other side my god like first of all how grateful are we for uh just coming out of the pandemic feeling like our staff our crew ourselves really feeling like we're on an upswing and and you know it feels like the world is rebuilding momentum creatively as well and it's just things are good all around completely back to normal now or still you know restrictions and protocols and all that fun stuff i mean to be honest with you like we just stopped talking about it you know i think everyone just got exhausted and started Started to feel like let's just pretend that <laughs> this is all we do right like like we, we we make stuff and if there's a hurricane we figure it out if there's a natural disaster of some kind we figure it out and uh the incredible thing as i think i've said before maybe even to you um which is weird but i'll say it again the unbelievable thing about nonfiction is and nonfiction producers and nonfiction crew is they are so damn resilient and it's that resilience that really you know lets them push limits and lets you push story limits and and that's kind of what we're all about so um yeah, it's, like, it's weird it's just it it became just a kind of natural um production problem you know it just became oh the, the, the talent didn't show up the car broke down the, we ran out of gas the you know there's no food at the at the gas station for everyone you know there's like, a worldwide there's a worldwide pandemic <laughs> you know just go with it <laughs> So you you have come out of it with this um, this project that we're here to talk about today, the Invisible Pilot for for HBO. Just reading the the sort of logline and the and the plot to this sounds completely ridiculous. Um, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about the the origins of the project to begin with? Yeah, I mean it's a it's been a long journey. I think the most extraordinary thing about this, just at the very top, is that it's been in our lives for about twelve years. Uh, I was um, at a film festival in Sonoma, in California, about. 12 years ago I think it was and obviously it's Sonoma so there's wine and a bar and I'm an Englishman so I like to hang out there and talk to people and I happened I happened to bump into a guy called John Crawford who's a screenwriter and he was telling me we just got talking about what projects we're working on and he had a film in a film festival and whatever and then he got talking about this film that he was writing and he was writing the fiction version of this story and he, he gave me a little breakdown of the story and every sort of two minutes I was like wait so that you made that bit up right and he said no, no. and I got like another couple of minutes in and it's like wait you made that bit up though right he said no that, that's true that happened and, it, and that kept going on and on and on chapter after chapter of the story and finally at the end of the conversation I was like why 
why are you making a fiction film? It sounds like we got to meet this guy. Uh, and then, you know, cut two years later, Ariana looking for, for, for the next project. And I think we, you know, we've both been talking about it over a few years and it just got stuck in our craw. You know, we just couldn't get it out of our heads. And so we just kept going and trying to get the story, trying to get the story. And finally, you know, a couple of years ago, I think beginning of the pandemic, we finally got the rights and um, started shooting. Without giving, obviously, watch the documentary, but without giving too much away, tell us a little bit about this um, this Stranger Than Fiction story. It's a, it's a three-part documentary series that begins with a small-town crop duster in Hazen, Arkansas, a place that I have no business ever ever being in, and really ends up amazingly following this crop duster as he takes these unbelievable pilot skills and ends up going toe-to-toe with Ronald Reagan, let's just say. Because I'm trying. the reason I'm talking this way is because I'm trying not to give any spoilers. And in my head, I'm going, nope, 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 nope. Because I really do think it, I don't, we don't usually care much about that stuff. But I think in this case, the cliffhangers are really important and really plays with the audience in an interesting way. But I think, uh, you know, to be more specific, because I didn't like my answer, I'll just say... I'll, I'll just say that the best way to describe it is a really twisty, turny, hard to believe, stranger than fiction story about a guy who disappears, who's essentially a nobody, family man, takes his kids for ice cream, and then you never see him again. And what emerges is that he is almost like a Forrest Gump character, and he keeps popping up through these uh, these very familiar moments in history, and ends up getting wrapped up in this huge political scandal. And um, you know, I think I think people will be surprised. And really, what we've tried to do is use a lot of the genres that we love like crime like you know um caper movies caper movies you know think adam mckay right i mean there's a reason the guy's on board tonally we're really trying to subvert some of those genres right and do something different which is kind of what we're trying to do across this whole company which i think i've been talking about now for eight years so yeah t- I, I, like you said t- adam mckay is, is is on board how did how did that come about is it is it a story just just the quality of the story yeah i mean look you know the funny thing is about this town is, uh, and I think about the content business in general, is that when you have something special, it really can and will get to the right people. It really is about the storytelling. It really is about the content. And it really is about the access. And uh, in this instance, Phil and I were like, okay, I mean, as we did with Cooper's Treasure and as we did with a lot of other things where we had big auspices excited quickly, we put together what the film looks, what the series is going to look like. We, 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 we shot with the main character. We, you know, we went above and beyond to really offer a slice of the project as opposed to saying this is a sales tape and hopefully you have a great imagination. Right. So as we've done in the past, we just made it just the two of us and and to William Morris's credit, you know, Josh Bider, Ryan McNeely, they were like, this is freaking unbelievable. We've got to get this to Adam McKay and Todd Shulman. And to their credit, they did. And about 10 minutes later, like the exact running time of the tape. I mean, truly, like 10 minutes later, the phone was ringing like we're in and we were like, this is how it's supposed to work. (laughs) How do you how did you get like you say? You came across the story um, at a bar, almost uh, the the time honoured story. But how do you um, how do you get access? Because a story this good, there's going to be a lot of television production companies chasing it. Surely, how how did you go about getting the access and sealing the rights? I mean, there wasn't really too many companies chasing it because I think that, and this is key, and Phil sort of touched on this. If Phil hadn't recognised that within that fictional story or that fictional that screenplay that was being written, there were all the whole 
hallmarks of a great nonfiction series, you know, it wouldn't have gotten, uh, it wouldn't have gotten to where it is. And I think that it's putting those antennas up as producers, as creators, right? As directors, as all of our peers do, right? I mean, you're always out there with your antenna up being like, okay, you know, what can I get excited about? What can I devote, you know, however many months to, you know? So um, I don't even think it was necessarily something that was like shopped around in that, in that case, but it was something that required a lot of sort of sensitive uh, trust building, not just with the local, uh, the sort of local filmmaker who was shooting archive, but also uh, the family. How do you settle then on the, on the, the format of it's a three-parter? I mean, could have been a feature doc. Is that, is, is that, does that come after you've pitched it and, and HBO have picked it up or how do you settle on, on the, the structure and the three parts? I mean, a, a little, I mean, I think part of it was, you know, this story presented itself as one thing. And I think the the local filmmaker had sort of gone down that path, this sort of quite a cool, crazy character, you know, unbelievable character, but had kind of, I think, got stuck in a rut of what he was trying to do. And I think Barry and I immediately just knew that there was this connection with this bigger political scandal at the, at the core of the story that we could use as a reveal. And then once you kind of laid out you know, the, the beats of the story, it actually was pretty linear in, in many ways. There's this sort of crazy opening mystery at the top of the show, at the top of the season. And then, um, you know, it goes through the story of his, his sort of romp through the 80s and, and nostalgia, and it ends up in the halls of government in DC. And once you look at those chapters, it's sort of actually fairly fairly obvious. And we don't, I don't think actually once Ari and I sat and wrote it, I don't think the structure of it changed since that, since that day. And I think you're right, it, it could definitely have been a feature doc. And when you see the show, I think you'll agree you know there's so much in this story it would just be a disservice to the amount of crazy twists and turns I mean I think everything could be a feature doc I mean the question is is going to be a series and you know not everything has that sort of legs and not everything has that ability to pull people through multiple chapters so was it um, was it just pitched to HBO or uh, did you did you shop it around with it did the phone ring 10 minutes uh, after 10 minutes again or uh, was it not that simple at the, at the buyer end no it, it was it was a, it was it was Bizarre. I mean, it was an absolute slam dunk. You know, once at once McKay and 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 Todd were on board, it was it was you know a really great stamp of approval. And and I and I and and because of the mutual respect with Hyper Object and and uh, HBO, you know, it really felt like we had a great team in place. And I mean, talk about additive partners. I mean, for real. I'm not just saying that. It kind of feels like this stranger than fiction genre has almost grown up out of the true crime buzz. Things like Don't Fuck with Cats and whatever are kind of with sort of hybrid true crime and oh my god you won't believe this story like is is that the direction that you see true crime heading in is it a direction your company's heading in or is it not that easy because stories like this don't don't just come along right you kind of have to wait for one to in this case come along by chance it's difficult to develop for them right uh, yeah i mean that's a really <laughs> smart point honestly and I, I didn't even really think about it that way that the true crime genre really is sort of the bedrock for a lot of these and i think i refer refuse to acknowledge or admit that we have to sit around and wait for these things to fall on our lap because I know they will never happen. <laughs> I, I like to think that the way to do it is to identify a space that you feel like has the potential for a gray area or for a reinvention or for another look. And then I think it's looking within that genre and studying it the best you can and trying to find some of the cracks within it and, and, and people or stories or ideas that haven't been proper really exposed or explored and I think within those cracks I think you can find the exceptional so is that is this going to be the, the sort of quintessential ample series moving
moving forwards? Is this the direction you want to go in, or is this is this a one off, or is it is it one of many? Look, to be totally honest with you, it may not be obvious on the surface, but that was always the plan. I mean, when we started this company, the stranger than fiction stuff is what we did. I mean, we were always doing Cooper's Treasure, or you know, even you know, Murder in the Heartland. I think really pushes into that into that realm. I know they're you know that's obviously a true crime thing on the surface, but underneath, when you look at the characters and what's in the seams of that show or what goes into the production, you you know, those are strange places and those are strange characters. And I think, you know, when we think about some of the stuff that we have coming up and when we think about where we want to be, I would say that more than ever, we feel really devoted to the layered stranger than fiction and really thinking about these stories as intellectual property because that's what they are. They are stories that are real, that don't need to be fictionalized and are better as nonfiction. If we can continue to do that, you can really break through the clutter, you know, and, and that is very much the goal here for sure. Yeah. Queen of Versailles was one of the original Stranger Than Fiction projects. <laughs> and you guys, you guys are, are, are revisiting that. Why now and uh, and why have, it, why have you gone back to that and what can we expect? All right. Well, calling Queen of Versailles Stranger Than Fiction makes me so happy inside because, again, I'm not just trying to compliment you. I didn't really put it together, but you're right. It really does fall nicely into that genre because the characters are really hard to believe. And Jackie Siegel herself has almost kind of created a sort of like alternate universe for herself and for her family, almost as like a bubble, almost like a protective bubble. And, um, you know, I think that's series also on the surface has that sort of entertainment value uh, that will, I really do believe, bring a huge audience. But I think underneath it, if we've done our jobs right, which hopefully we have, there is this sort of other message of legacy and of family and of really, um, again, pushing the limits, which is just something that I guess all of our stuff has in common. Is there a particular reason you've gone back to it now? is it is it just convenient timing? I guess like post pandemic. I think it was. Uh, I think it's partly it was a kind of anniversary. It was like ten years since the film, and I think that's always a good moment to revisit. And I'm lucky enough to have a business partner who is tenacious, like a dog with a bone, and is not afraid to have the balls of steel and just pick up the phone and ask someone if they want to make a TV show. And uh, he he called Jackie out of the blue and, and tracked her down and 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 really worked super super hard to kind of find a way in that I think sounded and, and made sense for for now. Well, I think also like you know again sort of these anti-hero characters right and in the case of Invisible Pilot we certainly have one and I think in the case of Queen of Versailles you do too where you've got you know someone who very publicly um, was presented a certain way and her family and life was presented a certain way and I think there's part of us that felt like it was time for this sort of redemption moment or this sort of you know opportunity to represent herself and her life uh, in a way that maybe offered something else And, and that felt and that felt very timely especially when people, I think, really do want to lean into the positivity of her and her story. Well, I mean, plenty to, to go on there, but what's what's next for you guys that you can tell us about? What What's direction of travel for, for Ample now? Hopefully things are back to normal, like we say. Um, look, the only thing really that has continued to sort of remain true has been for us to follow our instincts as, as filmmakers, right? And that instinct is the thing that's led us to the best content we've done. It's the stuff that we're really in 100%. And and I am looking at our slate and what we have coming up. And I just feel really, I'm just really, really positive. And people who know me know that I, I don't go to that place for no reason. I go to that place because I see substance in a lot of the stories that we have coming up. I see, you know, true crime story that is really also about life care 
and corporations. And we have another show that, you know, knock on wood, ends up at the place that we think it's going to end up. And it's another sort of one of these kind of twisty, turny, sort of hoax related stories. But underneath all of that fun, it's not just that. It's also it's also sort of a multi uh, multi chapter uh, project where you've basically got shapeshifters, right? You've got people who start as one way and end up as something else. And I think that'll keep the audience on its toes. So I don't know. We got to keep pushing the boundary because if we don't, you know, I'm not really sure what we're doing that's different than anything else, right? So we really, really just put a lot of pressure on ourselves to continue to, to deliver and to do that. But even in our natural history unit, only American-based natural history unit, you know, are on the precipice of a couple of really big projects that matter, you know, like they they, they have substance because they're talking about the environment. They're talking about places that, you know, might not be here down the road. So I think we're really trying to kind of, again, stick to our guns of committing to projects that mean something. And, you know, and hopefully that attracts not just audiences, but people to work with us and people who want to collaborate and people who don't think we're insane. <laughs> is that is that true crime job moving that in that direction? I know you guys have worked in it a lot. It seems to have sort of developed out of like wives with knives and, uh, you know, just self-contained one hours into, like you say, twisty turny stuff, but also stuff that matters. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think when I say stuff that matters, I also mean not vegetables either, right? I don't mean like something that because, you know what I mean? It matters that it's slow and that it's boring. I think it's the trick is, and this is the thing that has haunted us and, and something we've tried to kind of really do through our careers is what the hell is the intersection between the shit that matters, the substance and the commercial, things that people actually want to see. And if you can cross that T, if you can do that, then I think you crack it. I think that's that's what we've been trying to do. That's what I did, tried to do at AMC. That's what Phil tried to do on all of his shows as a showrunner. Like these are the things that we've always chased. And so we're lucky because if the market was going the other way, it would be a little bit of, a, of an identity crisis. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of pleased that it's not. <laughs> Former Netflix and Disney Plus exec Matt Broadley and one-time Sierra Affinity boss Jonathan Keir joined forces to launch their own Los Angeles-based film and TV production outfit called Upgrade Productions last year. With backing from Germany's Constantine Film and a strategic partnership with Canada's Bronze Studios in place, Upgrade is focused on developing local language stories from a range of territories with a view to bringing them to international audiences. Broadly spoke with Nico Franks at MIP TV in Cannes last week to talk about the business and how the line between film and TV is blurring. So Upgrade Productions is a relatively new company. Tell me a bit about its ambitions. Well, um, we uh, develop and produce film and series for um, global audiences. We produce um, all over the world and focus on local language productions. And obviously that's very in vogue at the moment. Uh, you're based out of LA, so how do you go about kind of sustaining those links with the international community? Right, so all of us um, at Upgrade, um, especially myself and my other co-president, Jonathan Keir, have had decades at this point of experience in the international marketplace. Um, he as a film sales executive and, and myself as a buyer for and commissioner for film and television. and always in the local language space. So it's just what we've done forever in this little, what was just a little corner of Hollywood, but is now more kind of front and center for everybody. And you've got experience at streamers like Netflix and Disney Plus. I imagine there's a lot of NDAs involved, but in terms of kind of what you can, what you learned during your time at those companies and what, how that feeds into what you're doing now, could you tell me a bit about that? Sure. Um, so in, 
Look, all of these places, even all the way back to when I was at Miramax in the 90s, um, acquiring local language films to import into the U.S., it was a matter of working with the producers, the directors, the actors, the agents, as they are in, in many of these uh, territories. And those were the people I talked to on a daily basis, even though I was based in Los, in Los Angeles or New York at the time. Um, and so it's, it's kind of the same as a domestic Hollywood executive speaking to agents at CAA all day long. So we just had a different set of, of folks. Uh, at Netflix and, and Disney Plus, I really got a sense of how those companies and streamers in general operate, what they look at, the analytics that they, that they use, um, how they use them, and really uh, got a sense of what a global audience and, and, and regional audiences and down to specific territory audiences are looking for in a lot of the world. So that's, that's really helpful, great experience to understand the particular industries that exist in all of these countries. And is it as simple as finding a universal theme like family or love or relationships in terms of you know finding those kinds of local dramas that are going to have international appeal. Yeah, I mean, you want everything to be authentically, you know, specifically grounded in the the place that it's set. Um, but if there's a universal theme, I mean, that's helpful. I think that there are a lot of instances where local stories will have a you know a special local resonance, and and therefore it doesn't have to travel. If it if you hit a home run with a French production in France, the fact that it travels beyond the the border is probably just gravy. Most of the um, streamers, the 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 global buyers, they don't you don't need to have that happen. They're they're very happy with a very big local hit. So that's what you're focusing on. Is, is focusing on, on making the show, as, I suppose, as good as it can be or appeal as much as it can do in a local territory. And what happens next doesn't matter? It's, it does matter, it, it's a, it, it, but it always has to work in its country of origin. You know, we're not making Japanese series to send to the UK. That doesn't make any sense. Like, we want to make Japanese series that, that work in Japan, that are um, impactful in that territory, and hopefully... Um, they will travel, and that would be terrific if they do. Tell me, so Japan, what other territories and countries are you working in? Um, we're, you know, we are going to, as I told you just earlier, we are going to announce some projects shortly, but we are working in Japan. Um, we're working in Germany, in Poland, in Italy, in Spain, in the UK, in Australia, and a couple countries in, in Latin America as well. A combination of film and television development at this stage, this early stage. And do you have a preference about whether or not the shows are watched subtitled or dubbed? Well, I personally can't watch dubbing, but I know that a lot of people do. And as long as the story, again, as long as the story resonates with an audience, then that's terrific. However it gets to them, and whether they, I mean, this is probably sacrilege, but like whether they watch it on the giantest screen or the tiniest telephone while they're, you know, in the subway, like if it moves them and, and resonates with them, then that's, that's terrific. That's storytelling. And how about genres? So um, is there a particular kind of style that you're looking to kind of have a, as a kind of commonality amongst those different shows? Um, not yet. We, we really aren't limiting ourselves as of yet into a particular genre or a particular region or or anything like that. We really are trying a lot of different things and we're going to see how they go. Um, whether it's uh, kids animation or local comedies or you know big international dramas, we're going to try all of that. Um, we have contacts in a lot of those areas and, and, and we want to work in those areas and see what happens. And 
the received wisdom that comedy doesn't travel, do you think that <laughs> that has disappeared now? Yes, I do. I, do. I mean, look, there's always going to be comedy that certainly doesn't travel. I mean, if you think of like some of these local German comedies that just are not going to go beyond those borders. Um, I mean, there's some French comedies I've seen that I can't believe are even made, but they, <laughs> but they are. Um, and, but I think that there are, you know, whether you have like a fish out of water or something like that, that's always going to work to some extent because everyone can access that feeling. And in terms of the, the structures of how the shows are put together, are you focused purely on the streaming model or that slightly more traditional model of piecing together broadcasters? Uh, we want to work in both. We think that um, every, every show, every film is, is particular to itself. And so once we have developed the project with the creators and the local producer, we'll take a look at the project and, and think like, what makes sense here? Should we go with a global buyer, a studio or a streamer? Or should we try to find, you know, a couple territorial buyers or, or territorial commissioners and piece it together that way, retaining some more creative control, some more financial upside. So we really want to look at both models. Because there is a distribution element. So you, you work with bronze studios on that side. Yes, on the film sales side, we have a, essentially a joint venture with Braun. Um, again, that's just for film sales, um, and that allows us that option if we want to go down that road rather than selling to a single global buyer. And how is the line between film and TV continuing to blur, and, and what are, do you think are some of the impacts of that? You know, <laughs> it's very blurred. Being here at MIP, it was, it was really interesting to see how many people from the film world are here and will be back at the film festival very shortly. So it, it really is blurred in terms of the people who are behind the scenes. I think obviously the directors and, and actors move back and forth quite, quite easily. Um, and just in, even in terms of the stories that are being told, we have a few projects that were pitched as a film and are now a limited series and, and vice versa. So I think that it is a matter of the creative team deciding, you know, how, how deep do you want to go? How long do you want it to be? Should there be, you know, do you want to continue this arc for four hours rather than just one and a half? And so I think those are discussions that everyone's having um, because the, the medium is so malleable really at this point. And what do you look for in a, in a producer in a, in a local territory when you're developing? That is a really good question and that is the most important decision that we often make. Luckily, because of the experience that we have and a lot of our uh, colleagues have over the years with in a, many, many territories, we know a lot of the folks. And there are people who, just like anywhere, just like in any business, there are people who you trust and there are people who are maybe not as trustworthy. And so the most important thing we can do is choose a really good local producer because, of course, I'm not going to be on the ground understanding everything that's going on in a Japanese production. It's impossible. But if we work with a, a local producer there who we think is really good and knows what they're doing and can execute and deliver, then that makes the whole difference. And how are you finding the expansion of those global streamers in different markets? So at MIP TV, we heard about HBO Max. That's its ongoing expansion strategy. Are you seeing, you know, is that... 100% good news, or is there a, is there a flip side to that? That's a really good question. With uh, with the expansion of all of the streamers globally, um, and the number of them increasing, and uh, regional players coming into play, like 
obviously like Viaplay and Univision's new um, streaming service across Latin America. There is just so much opportunity out there. The question is going to be, who remains? Do all these players still stay on the scene? And if you have projects with somebody who doesn't remain on the scene, what happens? Um, Quibi, you know, what happened to all those projects? Like, and so there's, there's a little bit of a fear about that. And I think that that certainly is in the mind of filmmakers and, and showrunners. They want to make sure that obviously their stories get seen. And so it's going to be important for them to be reassured that whatever outfit is the ultimate buyer is going to be around for some period of time. And just finally, how has the business in LA changed during the pandemic and we're coming up to May and the L- the traditional LA screenings. So is that kind of on your calendar at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the LA screenings are largely for the US um, studios to show the rest of the world what they've made. So that's not really our business, but certainly everyone will be in town. So that'll be terrific um, to see everybody there. And LA is certainly open. I hope it remains so, we'll see. Um, in terms of how it's changed, I mean, the streamers have continued to expand. I mean, when I was at Disney Plus, we launched Disney Plus from our living rooms over Zoom internationally after the domestic launch. The the, the rest of the world launched during pandemic. Um, and it all, all happened in all of these other streamers that have come online since then as well. Um, so it's all possible to continue to do work as long as we're able to shoot the shows and shoot the movies and keep everybody alive. And yeah, just finally, I suppose, the production crunch or the crew crunch that seems to be an ongoing thing it hasn't been really talked about that much here at MIP TV but is that something that's impacting you know when you're putting projects together yes absolutely that was actually a topic of discussion quite seriously at the can series connection that happened around MIP where there were a lot of producers from across the world and a lot of what they were saying was talking about how the budgets have had to increase because crews are costing more because they're dear. They can charge higher rates. And so um, that is real. And that's going to be very interesting to see how that pans out, especially with the advent of all of these new buyers needing all of this new content. That will be the squeeze. Studio space and crews are going to be the squeeze if they aren't already. Sean Doyle was appointed Chief Executive of Welsh Public Broadcaster S4C at the beginning of this year, with the UK government granting the organisation extra funding from the BBC's licence fee shortly after. Doyle was at MIP TV in Cannes last week and spoke to Carolina Kaminska about how this boost would allow S4C to fulfil its ambitions of delivering high-quality content in the Welsh language to the widest possible audience, working with international partners. Of course, our settlement decision was announced in January from um, the DCMS, which secured our funding then for um, the next sort of six, seven years, which is great, and, and therefore allows, from my perspective, us to get into a real you know, planning mode and get, get going on um, developing our digital platforms and then really looking at where our content is going um, for the next few years. So, yeah, it's been, it's, that's been really positive. We have got a lot of work to do, Um, obviously coming out of COVID as well, um, you really now start doing more long-term planning um, around where where we want to be. So yeah, very good. I've enjoyed it anyway. That's good to hear. Um, And so what's your strategy as the new CEO and um, has it changed under your tenure? Um, It's changed in the fact that the settlement has given us a real funding now to develop our digital platforms. We're, We're a very linear Um, heavy focused broadcaster um, and really 
one of the biggest pieces for me now is to pivot the organisation to think about content first and then really think about how we manage our platforms um, and investing then in our player because we have our own player. We also are on iPlayer as well. Um, but I'm also thinking about all of our social media channels in terms of what our publishing and, and distribution strategies around that. So, so yes, it is going to be quite different. And, and our challenge in, in Wales, which we have to get all of the team focused on, is to really think about the new generation of Welsh audiences. We, we obviously are incredibly popular with the Welsh speakers that are the traditional Welsh speakers, but now with more mixed households, a lot more people learning Welsh, um, the education policy is very much about creating a million speakers by 2050. Um, we have a big role in that, um, and therefore our content has got to pivot as well to bring in new audiences. For instance, last week we had um, the football on Thursday. We had a phenomenal, we had a free-to-air for Wales-Austria which is amazing. It was obviously paid for on Sky and brought loads of new people into S4C. And our challenge now is to then keep them and from a retention strategy um, and, and maintain that audience going forward. Um, and can you talk a little bit about your current slate and pipeline? Um, I know there's some international formats and dramas launching soon. Yeah, we, we have a really exciting time. Um, we'll start with our next big piece. Um, well, no, let me start first. Um, I've just come from a long weekend up in Aberystwyth where on Saturday night we um, did a charity concert for Ukraine um, and we had Yuri, um, the baritone, that sang outside Downing Street. So we had a real mix of our cultures on Saturday night, all for the deck, um, Ukraine. Um, and it was incredibly um, moving and emotional weekend. And then on Sunday, we had Amelia, you know, the seven-year-old that sang in the bomb shelter. We flew her over and she was very keen to sing on Welsh. It was absolutely amazing. But we had the Welsh choir finals, which was an amazing evening in itself. So our content is really wide-reaching and, and international. The next big thing that we have coming up is a co-production with Channel 4. Um, and Joanne Scanlon. So Joanne Scanlon about a year ago did a programme with us on learning how to speak Welsh because she's from North Wales. She learned Welsh and then um, over the last few months she's been filming in South Wales a drama production which will be back-to-back uh, -back in Welsh and in, in English and it's amazing as a BAFTA winning actress that she's going to be doing it all in Welsh and then all in English which will be showing on Channel 4 on Sunday. We have two, another big two dramas, one that's been sold internationally called The Amgiedfa, which is about the museum. Um, and we also have a heist, exciting one, all in Welsh, which we have sold to an international distributor as well. So that, from a drama perspective, is really exciting. Our sport is sport. You know, in Wales, everybody's mad. We're excited about what's coming up with the um, Wales qualifiers. And then we have a load of documentaries, one with ITV about the little boy that was killed in Bridgend, which we'll be showing. Um, so there's some documentaries. And then the other part is the formats that we've um, co-produced with Channel 4, the Great House Giveaway called Tiam Vim in Welsh. Um, that's obviously won a BAFTA Broadcast Award and an RTS Award. Um, and that was obviously done back to back in Welsh and in English. We're looking at a, a really exciting new format with them. Um, which we'll be able to reveal soon, hopefully. Um, and then we've just sold um, a format that was started in Welsh called Am Draw, which is Take a Hike, which is, um, which is a really lovely programme, all about the outdoors and going for walks. 
um, and that's also been sold to five countries. Um, so we've got quite a lot coming up. It's really exciting. Can you talk about your ambitions in the in the, the with with global and international partnerships? Yeah, we we have a lot of ambition in our, our sort of one of our big genres is drama, um, and we have a film fund that's been um, announced. So we are obviously going to be looking at developing some films over the next two or three years. The idea is, you know, because you're doing it in Welsh, um, we're not competitive, so we can co-develop and co-format and co-produce with anybody, really. And then that, that access to that content, one from a Welsh audience perspective, is exciting, but also then can be going internationally. So I think the term that everybody talks about is that we're open for business. And that's absolutely the case. We want to partner as much as possible. Um, I've just appointed a new chief content officer in Hinos, who has got huge experience internationally um, through Wild Flame. She's been responsible for the documentary that we've been doing with Wrexham, with Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, um, which will be showing with us um, in the summer. And then I've appointed Gair as my new um, platform to create our new platform strategy. So I have a brand new team now who are all going to be outward focus, audience and also partnerships. And that really is our, our goal to really bring great content into Wales, but develop content in Wales as well with, 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 with amazing partners. Um, and uh, so you've got your 40th anniversary this year, S4C. Um, uh, what are your plans for that? Well, there's going to be, we might want to talk a bit later on about that. We've, we've got a lot going on for that. Um, some really, really exciting announcements that um, will be coming out in October, November, which we won't spoil today. But if we talk to you in October, there'll be a load coming up. There'll be some film uh, announcements. We, um, we'll have a big event in New York, um, which we can talk about. And there's quite a lot going on. And we're relaunching our uh, player, um, the digital player that we have. Um, so yeah, so some exciting stuff coming up. What would you say is your main sort of vision for S4C over, over the coming year and beyond? The, the main vision really is to create content that brings new audiences into our channel um, and not, you know, Wales is, is bigger than just Wales, so we need to be the window for Wales. We have some amazing talent in Wales, but we also have a lot of people outside who are interested in our content. It is all about you know, growing the audience and, and bringing fantastic content to them. So that's really our focus. The BBC last year announced plans to merge its in-house children's production unit into its commercial arm, BBC Studios, as part of efforts to build new global brands within the BBC and on third-party platforms. BBC Children's Production, maker of shows such as Blue Peter, My Mum Tracy Beaker and Something Special, transferred to BBC Studios this month and former Warner Media exec Cecilia Pearson joined as Managing Director of the division recently. She spoke with Carolina Kaminska about the changes and the ways in which she's looking to work with external partners. Can you provide a brief overview of the integration of BBC Children's Productions into BBC Studios and what this means for the division? Um, so basically, we are uniting uh, BBC Children's with BBC Studios Kids team. And we're you know, creating a, a global content division. 
And so we can, you know, get the scale and breadth of what our combined businesses can provide. And uh, that can also, what we really feel here is that that can really welcome, you know, the best class in talent into the business as well, because we have um, cross-genre capabilities production-wise coming from BBC Children. But we also have real editorial expertise and independent partnerships within studios and also that end-to-end execution um, across consumer products, digital and content sales within studios. So it really puts us as a, a sort of a, a complete picture in kids and family. So that's the, the plan to unite it all. And so with the integration in a bit more detail, a bit more specifically, how will the new BBC Studios Productions Kids and Family Arm actually work? Um, So we'll have one portfolio across the BBC Children's production team, as well as the independent relationships and the studio relationships that we have. And we'll work very closely to create global kids and family content. And uh, so it's Henrietta Herford-Jones has been heading up uh, and continues to head up on the studio side. And me and Henrietta with Helen Bolo, who is the head of children's production, will work very closely together to pull together that slate and those partnerships in the market that we're looking to have to really have a diverse content portfolio to bring to the audience and corporate partners in the BBC. And as MD of the new department, can you talk a bit more about your strategy? So, you know, I want to build on what we already do uh, really effectively and well and increase our reach for our in-house productions uh, and develop global brands and really provide, you know, value to the younger audience around the world. And can you talk about who you've got on the team and what plans that you might have for potential expansion of the team? So um, I already mentioned, obviously, Henrietta and Helen. And so we'll be collaborating really closely. But we will all, we're will we also at the moment looking to beef up on our sales side and our co-production side. Uh, so we're looking for a director of global sales. And also very shortly, we're going to be looking for a sales manager as well to round that team out. So that's to grow uh, and expand on our existing experience in that area okay and so when it comes to um your slate and your pipeline what have you what are you offering at the moment can you talk about some of some of the shows that you've you've got yeah currently we have 16 shows in production and uh, amongst them is jojo and grand grand which um has gained some international uh, appeal already we're also in production of super tato which hasn't launched yet and that's a really great example of partnership between ourselves and the bbc and also tencent video from China. And then we also currently have uh, with our independent production partners, we're still we're in production on Bluey and Hey Dougie at the moment. And is there anything else that you're looking to produce to boost your current slate and pipeline? Is there something in particular that you'd you'd really like to get working on? Um, yeah, we, we very much want to increase our focus on animation for six plus and also in factual entertainment and high-end drama is an area as well where we are looking at options at the moment. And can you talk a little bit about um, opportunities for other producers to work with BB Studios Productions, Kids and Family and, and sort of how that works? Uh, I mean, we have a, a really strong existing uh, track record in working with the independent production community. And I, and I think in, in this particular part of the industry, you know, there isn't one size that fits all. You know, every project is individual and we want to work with the 
best in the business and, you know, really allow for the creative vision to come to life. So, you know, we, we, we want to find the partners that can make us produce the best and the strongest content. So, yeah, really open to all kinds of relationships. And so now looking ahead, what are your ambitions for the newly integrated department uh, for the foreseeable future? I mean, I, I, I want to build this division. I want us to come together. I really want to build it. I want us to become recognized for our creativity and the fact that we can provide this end-to-end business scale to partners and commissioners. I want things to have a global appeal and to um, have that stamp of seal of quality that the BBC has. I mean, for me, I think it's really, we're in a really fantastic position because we have that cross-genre production capabilities and, you know, a really strong editorial expertise. We've delivered some good global hits and I just really, um, that breath, I hope, you know, is really welcoming to great talent because we want some really good uh, original ideas from talent to come our way. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll hear new interviews airing from Tuesday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 